You're listening to One Life by Mo, a Patagonia music benefit track for the Rainforest Action Network. One life is all we own. One life is Introducing Patagonia Music, exclusive songs from your favorite bands to raise money for environmental activism. Search Patagonia Music on iTunes or download the free Patagonia Music iPhone app and you can stream the Dirtbag Diaries wherever you roam. Patagonia Music. Buy a song, benefit the environment. Learn more at patagonia.com slash music. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. Okay, so we're going to do something pretty different today. I'm really excited about it. There are certain points in my life where I have to take a moment to pinch myself and make sure that I'm not dreaming, and this is one of them. For the longest time, I've been wanting to do a live performance of the Dirtbag Diaries, but in truth, Becca and I just haven't had the time, the money, the know-how, the audience to pull it off. We just didn't know how to do it. So it's been this idea that's been sitting there collecting dust in the shelves of my mind. Then I got a phone call. It was Julie Kennedy and Beta Calhoun, the driving force behind the Five Points Film Festival. They had a film festival, so they had an audience. They had a tight-knit creative community in Carbondale, Colorado. They had a venue. It was awesome. They were bringing in a bunch of people who I knew had stories to share. They greenlighted everything with Patagonia and New Belgium. And all I would have to do is come to Carbondale, prepare my show, and try not to get nervous up on stage. So I went to work. We knew we wanted it to reflect everything the diaries had come to represent. It shouldn't be super polished. It needed to come out honest. We wanted to take on the feeling of an easy conversation with an old friend sitting on the back of a truck while you're drinking beers. That's what we wanted it to feel like. We wanted the audience to feel like they were a part of it because they are. So we decided we would interview people whom filmmakers felt were worthy of dedicating a movie to. So people in films. We would also work with people who dedicated their lives to bringing the joy we feel in the outdoors to the big screen. We gave each of them a theme to center their stories around. So we gathered on a Saturday afternoon at Steve Guitars, just off Main Street in Carbondale, Colorado. Guitars hung from every bit of ceiling and wall space. The radiators hummed and creaked. Beers were passed around. Ice cream was delivered, and we went to work. We interviewed an angler who gave away a secret in order to protect a place. An old soul living in a 22-year-old's body who set out to change his own life and his community. A photographer who stepped back from a globe-driving lifestyle to focus on the small things and created a viral sensation in the process. And finally, a filmmaker struggling with the highs and lows of creating his art. I was so conflicted about sharing this incredible stash. You know, from the standpoint of fishing, it was the ultimate place in my opinion, the ultimate fish. You know, it's like I can relate to them because, you know, at that age, I didn't have nobody to go to and talk to at that time, you know? Like, so now I'm seeing, like, if I had a champ in my life at that time, life would have probably been a whole lot easier for me. It's a place that kind of demands a lot of patience out of you, and uh, there's always big storms just coming straight out of the sea, and you have to kind of spend time there to really, to know the special parts and the special moments, and start to get a feel for 
how things went there. I went and sat down next to Warren Miller right afterwards, and you know, he he, he had just watched Signatures, and uh, he, he leaned over to me and he said, uh, "You know, that movie was really great, but I think you should get somebody to do some voiceovers. That subtitled Japanese stuff, is not, not not very good." are their stories. We've only lightly edited them so that they appear in the way that the audience heard them. We want you to feel like you were there. So today, we present Live from Five Points, Volume 1. This is the Dirtbag Diaries. Welcome. I'm Fitz Cahal, and I may be the luckiest man alive. How does an idea gain footing? At its inception, can you have a sense for how far this idea might carry you? In 2010, Drea Cooper and Zachary Canapari released the short film Scraper Town. It was part of California is a Place series. It was a story about teenagers, bikes, and most of all, an idea. At the center of the story is Tyrone Stevenson Jr., a.k.a. Baby Champ, a.k.a. the original Scraper Bike King. When Champ made his first scraper bike years ago, nobody else was doing it. It was just something he did. He didn't know he would become a YouTube sensation. He didn't know that he would become an influential mentor within his community or that he would begin to figure out how to start a nonprofit that would be part bike shop, part scholarship program, part dream. He was painting his bike and creating stylized rims with foil, mostly because he needed something to do. In 2007, Champ and his friends, the Trunk Boys, a rap group, created a song and a video about scraper bikes that quickly generated over 1 million views and is now well over 4 million views. This idea that a bike could change a whole community, it took Champ from the streets of East Oakland to being nominated for a Jefferson Award. We'd heard about what the movement could do, but what we were interested in was the moment of inception. Where did it all start? You know, my mom raised me as a single parent, so it was just always me and her growing up. So she did everything she can to, you know, change my mind frame on the streets of Oakland, you know, try to try to bring out the best in me, out of me. So around that time, I had got kicked out of middle school, I was sent to an alternative school where I met this teacher, Miss Mayfield. And she just told me, whatever it is that you like doing, do it for the rest of your life. If you like talking, find something to talk about. If you want to ride your bike, find the nicest bike you can ride and find somewhere to ride to. You know, so I just took that all in along with the things that my mom was telling me. And at that time, my mom took away my Xbox, you know, all of my video games. So I was stuck with nothing but a bike and some foil that I took from her out the kitchen. And then she was just like, when she first seen me off the first bike, she was like, I know that's not my foil on that bike. I'm like, I'll buy you some more. It's only $3, you know. And, you know, just scraper bikes. That, that was my whole thing. I was the first one in Oakland riding scraper bikes. You know, I took the aluminum foil. I got some spray paint from an old class project. And I just got the spraying on it. Like, and then I had, like, these little handy paints, enamel paints. 
And like, you know, you guys know how the, the Buick emblem is on the cars. I hand painted it on the front of the bike and it was green. It was like the cleanest bike ever. But then, you know, so after making that one bike, I made another bike, you know, and then I made another bike and then I made another bike. And then my cousins wanted to ride the bikes. So we just started riding around, you know, riding around the um, neighborhood. What was it like seeing this idea catch on? And I mean, seeing it, you know, first off, like, what was that first bike ride? You know, when you first had like your, your bike and you're like, this bike's done. You know, it's got the Buick label on it. It's got all the, <laughs> all, all the, the foil there and you took it out. What was that? What was that experience like to take it out and just be like proud of something that you completed? It was amazing. You know, just seeing the community's reaction, it was like something they've never seen before. And so I'm like, okay, if the community have never seen it before, pretty sure the world have never seen this before. So if I give it to them and, you know, and go on this ride, you know, and, and actually record it and put it on YouTube, let's see what the reaction is going to be. And it, it blew up. Did you, did you think it would blow up? I had a gut feeling, you know, because <laughs> it's something that's never been done, you know, and, and people in my community that was just really digging it. Like, what is that? You should name those scraper bikes because it's like, you know, I got the name scraper from the cars that I ride in my community, you know, with the Buick emblems on it, with the big rims that's like 24, 28 inch rims and it scrapes the inside of the wheel well. And so we called those scrapers. And then I borrowed that idea and named the bike scraper bikes. What point did you trademark it? Before the YouTube video or afterwards? After the YouTube video. <laughs> After once, you know, once I got to up to a million views, I had to find, you know, I had to tap into some different resources because I'm like, okay, this is getting big and out of control, you know. So I had to find some some older, you know, older mentors to help me out and guide me to where I needed to go. And from there, you know, I lived and I learned. In terms of like building, you know, the idea and, and it evolved from you, you know, and, and your cousins first taking the bikes out for a spin, you know, cause they wanted to. And then it was like, they become these big rides and like, how big are these rides now? Like when you organize a scraper ride, like how big can they be? Well, like a few summer, well, this past summer I put together this back to school ride and we had about 150 bikes, but Reese, but before that I was promoting doing a non-violence ride, you know, this big ride citywide ride. And there was a turnout of over 500 scraper bikes. Like everybody made their own bikes and came to the event and it was like huge. We rode around this big lake. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Lake Merritt in Oakland, but we rode around the entire lake. And like, if you're on one side of the lake, you can look over the lake, you can still see more bikes coming around. So it was like, wow, like, wow. It just, it was like, it's, it's a humbling situation. Like I've never thought in a million years or 22 years that I can, <laughs> that I can achieve, you know, something as big as this, especially, you know, being in the neighborhood that I'm in. So he might be somewhat confused himself. Scraper Bikes is on the scene. Everybody want to join the Scraper Bike team. 28's looking clean. Started with a dream. Now everybody know me as the Scraper Bike king. Where's it, where's it going to go, though? Like, where do you want it to go? Or do you even know? Or is it just something you're just, like, following along and letting evolve on its own? Or, like, are you directing this? Are you channeling this idea now? Well, right now, you know, I'm definitely channeling it. You know, I'm tapping into different resources. What my overall goal with the Scraper Bikes is to create my nonprofit, you know, have the nonprofit status. 
And I've just recently finished up my program description on everything I want to do with the nonprofit. And my long-term goal is to give, you know, scholarship, full scholarships to youth, you know, members of the Skirt Bike team, as well as traditional scholarships. So I can, you know, have their backs on whatever they want to be for the rest of their life. You know, right, right now I'm trying to get a facility together because there's a total of 30 plus members, you know, and they're all middle school age youth. And they come to my house every day, <laughs> like every day. It's getting frustrating sometimes. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's like I can relate to them because, you know, at that age, I didn't have nobody to go to and talk to at that time, you know, like, so now I'm seeing like, if I had a champ in my life at that time, life would have probably been a whole lot easier for me, you know, because the kids that I'm into right now in Oakland, they go through a lot of stuff. And if they didn't have that positive voice in their head telling them right from wrong, because a lot of them don't listen to their parents. You know, parents call me and they want me to, you know, like talk to them through, you know, so. And I, and with that being said, I, I made a GPA requirement that you shall have seen, a, a minimum of 3.0 GPA in order to be a part of the team. And so if they fall below a 3.0 GPA, they're mandatory. They have to have a, pro a progress report. I give them progress reports. And they have to take it to school and they have to have all their teachers sign it. Then, you know, if it's bad, then I, you know, then I put them on suspension, which means no take, no riding, don't come to my house at all, don't call me until you can show improvement. Know, school first and everything else follow after that. Have there been kids that, that you've worked with and that you've helped that sort of got away from you, you know, in the sense that, that they were like on the right path and then kind of went, I mean, is that something that, that you're bumping up on a regular basis or? I mean, previously, like years before, yeah, because I didn't have a clear vision on what it is that I want to do and how I can help them. You know, but versus now as I'm getting older and really seeing exactly what it is that I want to do for the rest of my life, you know, besides scraper bikes, it's like as they get older, they figure out what it is that they want to do, you know, and, and the best thing I can do is just help them out as far as I can. But once they start veering off into the negatives and I see them, you know, within that, I ask them, like, are you in school? What are you doing with your life? And I start making them feel bad. Like, you use the ignorant fool. You're not in school. What are, what are you going to do for them? You're going to be a drug dealer? And then you're going to be in jail five times, ten times a year with no money in your pocket, with no, you know, no money to even get bail, you know, bond. So I make them, really, I make them feel bad. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just so they can just think, like, dang. Champ, right. And I even had one of, my, one of the kids tell me, like, Champ, you a psychic. Like, you see things before it happen. I'm like, no, that's that's only because you know I've been in your sh I've been in that position before. You know, I've seen it firsthand. You know, so it's not that I'm telling you something that I just think that's going to happen. I'm telling you something that I know is going to happen. Where do you see yourself five years from now? You know, like where do you see scraper bikes? Where do you see you five years from now? Five years from now, what I want to do is I want to eventually franchise. You know, build different chapters. You know, throughout the nation, you know, in, in at-risk neighborhoods similar to Oakland, you know, even around the world, really. But five years from now, I don't know. I'm thinking, like, what's going to happen tomorrow, <laughs> you know? But, yeah. Do you think, I mean, that's a pretty neat feeling to know, to not know what's going to happen tomorrow. Like, like, that's a pretty special, special point in your life to, like, have that ability to be, like, Five years, no idea. Next week, not so sure. Mm. You know, it's that's a that's a pretty cool thing. Do you think that that's 
does it make you more curious? Like, does it make you more like what is going to happen? You know, like, like, how do you tell, do you tell that to the kids? Like that idea of not knowing the outcome of something. Well, you know, with the kids, they, they look, well, at one point in time, they was always looking up to the drug dealers, you know, and you can all, you already know the outcome of that. You're dead or in jail. Simple as that, you know? So, but if you was to go to school and really follow your goals and, and, you know, really live out your dream, you would never know where that might take you, you know? And that's what I tell the kids a lot. Like, if you want to go out there and be like a drug dealer, you already know the final outcome of that. They don't have, they don't have any money. You know, they're broke. They're living with their parents somewhere, 45, 30 something, you know, it's like, you already know the outcome, but if you was to follow a dream, do something that you don't know the outcome to. And that's, that's, where I'm at right now. I don't know the out, final outcome to the Scrapper Bike Movement, but I'm definitely going with the flow of things. And so far, so far, so good. Does it ever, ever feel like a weight or has it always just been a gift in your life? It's always been a gift. Like, like you know, I don't know. I feel like my father is in heaven watching over me. Every step that I take, is 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 you know it, he's giving me that step you know he's giving me that breath and so just with every kid that come i know i can make some type of change in their life you know and i believe that that's what my father or that's what my calling is for you know to make that change in somebody else's life because of the things that i've been through in my life and the things that my father you know put you know put other people through during his life you know so i feel like i'm here to actually straighten up, you know, the kinks of, you know, the, my city, Oakland. And it's like, my city, Oakland, is the fifth most dangerous city in the entire country. So, you know, we're faced with a lot of adversity and a lot of a lot of challenges, you know? And so, for, and the biggest thing going on in Oakland right now is the scraper bike movement. So a lot of the kids is clinging on to it, you know? And it's like, they, they, they're really having ownership to this entire movement. Is your is your your mom must be kind of proud, huh? My mom don't know where I came from. <laughs> She's like, okay, one year you're this like terrible child that's like smoking weed in a school bathroom, and now you're like silence the violence. Like, what's going on? <laughs> it's like I made a complete op you know turnaround on everything that I was doing. But, you know, as you get older, you get wiser, you know, you really start to open your eyes on the things that's really going on, you know, and the things that's really affecting you as a person. They call it a phenomenon on YouTube sensation. All I can say is support my innovation. Going green in the hood. Tell me what's good. Supporting positive just like your boy should. On my way here, or the day before I flew into Colorado, I got an email saying that I was nominated for a Jefferson, a National Jefferson Award. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that, but it's like, I guess a branch under from the Nobel, no, what is it, the Nobel Peace Prize Award or something like that. So it's like a really big deal. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> That was Baby Champ. My name Baby Champ, I'm a certified boss, I wrote the Trump Boy Camp. Where I be in the streets 50 deep, riding my bike looking fly I've never heard of a rooster fish. So let me break it down because I'm guessing you probably haven't either. 
Roosterfish is a powerful, blunt, beautiful fish that doesn't make for good eating, but fights like hell. And until Frank Smethurst and his brother William came along, it evaded fly fishermen. They basically were the ones who figured out how to catch this fish on a fly. In the mid-1990s, Frank and William started going down to Baja in the Sea of Cortez, where the roosterfish lives. They were there on family vacations and on fishing trips, and they began developing a bizarre, somewhat hilarious technique for catching these fish. It involved wind sprints. Lots of wind sprints. And it was anything but graceful, but it worked. And Frank and William, well, they kind of had their own private heaven. They had an incredible fish, an incredible fishery, that only they knew how to fish. And maybe even more notable is that the two brothers managed to keep it a secret. It was theirs. But things in Baja weren't all good. We all pray to find our secret spot. Whether you're a surfer, climber, angler, whatever, we all dream of a place where we can find perfection and solitude. And that's a pretty difficult thing to find. So to have a place like that, well, it would take a lot to give it up. Maybe in the end, the only way a person can save a place is to shout about it. Or if you're Frank, you team up with Travis Rummel and Ben Knight, the masterminds behind Felt Soul Media, Red Gold and Eastern Rises. Ryan Peterson, who co-starred in Felt Soul Media's Eastern Rises, is also up on stage with us. You'll hear him chime in. You and your brother had that whole spot to yourself for a long, long time. And then you decided that it was worthy, that, you know, that that place needed to be talked about or shown. And why did you do that? Because it sort of seems like a silly thing to give up a really sweet fishing spot. You know, at, at that point in time, it was like being on the ultimate surf break in the world. Um, and there was nobody in the sets around you, ever, ever, ever. I was so conflicted about sharing this incredible stash. You know, from the standpoint of fishing, it was the ultimate place, in my opinion, the ultimate fish, and, and, and really just, you know, just such a magical and different experience. It was a type of approach in fishing that it never, ever, ever existed. And so we were winging it. We were making it up all on our own and had it all to ourselves. And, you know, as we would go up and down the beaches for really almost a decade completely alone, um, the only thing that we would see really going on was purely extractive. You know, we were the only people... Uh, it seemed like fishing in the Sea of Cortez that weren't killing everything. Yeah, you know, we were catching these fish and, you know, probably ruining their day. But, you know, we were, you know, cradling them and taking good care of them, you know, and put, sending them back out into the surf to do their thing. Um, and it just, you know, everybody was looking at us like we were completely insane. At the same time, during that, that decade that we were sort of figuring out how to make this, how to consistently see the fish on the beach, sprint down to where we needed to go, create the cast, and send them a fly that they would actually eat. It was, a, it was quite the, you know, the endeavor, and we got our asses kicked a lot, most of the time. 
in learning all of this. And during that decade, while we were figuring this out, one of the things that we really noticed was very quickly how the resource, how the Sea Cortez was declining right before our eyes. You know, it was slipping through our fingers. We would, you know, there were between the nets and then the, the, the huge industrial fishing boats that you would see suddenly on the horizon at dusk. And they would push into the coast, get up over the reefs, and you'd see their lights at night. Um, and it was one of those deals where, you know, foreign fisheries were coming in um, and, you know, someone was getting paid off so that they weren't inspected, et cetera. And the resource was just getting manhandled where, you know, and, and you have to understand that this, the Sea of Cortez is very much the Amazonian rainforest of oceans on this planet. There is nothing that compares to it. You know, even the, something like the Great Barrier Reef doesn't have as many species of fish as the Sea of Cortez. Cortez has an enormous uh, coral reef and just every possible habitat you could ever imagine and just life on top of life on top of life. You know, while we were watching this, you know, really sort of diminish, it, it occurred to me that, number one, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to work with Ben and Travis, you know, and do something that, that didn't exist. But I also wanted to potentially compromise the solitude that William and I had enjoyed in the hopes that suddenly there would be some people down there that, yeah, they were sharing the beach with us, but you know what? There were other people turning fish loose and appreciating what was there and sort of also spreading the word and the vibe that we needed to be stewards of this place and not continue this go down to Cabo with your cooler, load it up, and get out of there and just stay at one place and not appreciate the culture and the locals and the history and the environment. And that's, that's where we were and where Travis and Ben and I were, you know, real exceptions to the American fishing culture that existed up until that point. And I'm serious. We really changed that. There's a couple of these incredibly prominent sand points that if you are there in even halfway the right time and place, they're coming. And I mean, they look, it looks like the Batmobile swimming down the beach at you. They are, it's so unbelievable. And you know, in this just azure water, total white sand beaches, and here he comes just right down there. And it's, it's just so beautiful watching these things. And oftentimes they're in pairs you know, they're sort of boyfriend and girlfriend kind of on a parade lap, like, look how beautiful we are, you know, here in the surf. And a lot of times you can't get the boyfriends and girlfriends to bite because they're so wrapped up in each other. But just as they cruise by you, it's just like, wow. I certainly realized, you know, when, you know, when we got done and I saw how good, you know, Ben made it, basically. Um, it, was, it was evident that this was going to be the shot heard around the world from the standpoint of fishing, fishing and film. I mean, do people go down there and have success now? Like, like do people, I mean, so, people are catching these fish? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of very talented fishermen and very observant fishermen in the world. And uh, 
almost all of them, when they saw running down the man, were like, boom, that is the real deal. And I know what a test this is going to be for me. It's like, you know, it's like a surfer, you know, sooner or later, you, you either ride pipeline and do it or you don't. And that's what rooster fishing is. You either, you go down there and you'll see them, but when you don't catch them, uh, you understand. And, and that has happened with 90% of the people that have gone down there. Most people go down there and really it's all theater to them. They see fish, but they swim right on by and the fish don't even acknowledge what they've tossed in there if they can get it in there. They're trying. And, you know, the cool thing is, is that we really, we used a lot of stunt flies and stuff like that. Yeah, we, we, we never really talked about exactly where we what's were. A, what's a stunt fly? Just a... Well, I took, and Ben will tell you, you know, that I was just ruthless about, you know, it's like, damn it, Ben, don't you photograph this fly? You know, because I've got, I've got this fly that they freak on. They just, if you've got it, <laughs> you win. It's the smart bomb. Um, <laughs> And we never really put it in the film. Uh, it, we used stunt flies and replacements to disinform those that were looking very, very closely so that they could go down there and they could appreciate it and they could get their shit handed to them in the same manner that we did for a decade. Um, and if they could figure out what the fish would bite, hey, more power to them. But they can't have my, our fly. Um, so why don't you sell them your fly and, you know, retire if it's that good of a fly? It is that good, but uh, but some things have to stay secret, huh? Some things do have to stay secret, and you know, so that 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 was the the sort of trade off uh, that that we made there. I was shooting from the hip. I didn't know, you know, sort of what all was going to happen, but I I just knew that the the fly at least I wanted to. That was the part of the secret spot that I knew I could keep as mine, and yeah, it was pretty. Yeah, it was on Ben like. Crazy, all of the time, all the time. You know, put that camera away, Ben. Ben is right down here in front, uh, smirking at me. We would go, you know, and explore and fish and bird watch all over the peninsula and all these weird and cool places. It's one of the best places still to road trip anywhere, anywhere even though it's right out our back door. Um, my brother and I, you know, and this really was the thing that really, this one event was the thing that put this place so squarely into my heart. And my brother and I were, were way, way out from land in a, in a friend of ours boat. And you could barely see the Rocky Coast and Sierra Maestra range um, back towards the west. We're way fr away from land. Um, where you could just barely make out the coast only on one side, and you could not at all on the east side. So we were out in the blue water. I mean, this is, you know, you know, thousands of feet deep. One of the things that makes the Sea of Cortez so unique is it really is one of the very deepest oceans so close to land anywhere. And uh, so, you know, you can be standing on the beach and whales will cruise right by you, and, you know, you, you could literally jump in and swim with them at the right time of year. Um, so, anyhow, so we're out there, and, you know, we're, just, you know, we're catching fish and just, um, it's amazing. The water is so cobalt blue when you're that far out uh, from shore. And we were fishing for Dorado. And all of a sudden, William and I turned and looked eastward. And there was this giant blue skyscraper sticking up out of the ocean, going up, going up, going up. And all of a sudden, seemingly hanging there. 
and then just in slow motion because it was so big. And, you know, I've seen humpbacks. I've seen gray whales. I've seen so many different whales. And this so wasn't any of those. This was a blue whale. And it was, you know, this beautiful steel blue just hanging. And you could see, you know, they're, they're much more streamlined than all the other whales. And usually they don't really jump like this. But I'm here to tell you this thing went for it. And he was so far out. And he was almost to his flukes. He was so far out. And my brother and I turned to face him and just couldn't help it. We started screaming. Ah! Ah! And this thing just hung there, just suspended in the air, and just slowly fell back. And my brother and I were like, ah! Ah! And it fell back in with probably the mightiest can opener that has ever been dealt on the face of the earth. And it put up a vapor plume, not from its breath, but from that splash that was a cloud. It was a cloud that we watched go from right to left on the horizon for about five or 10 minutes. That, that whale, by jumping in that spot, created its own little weather system. <laughs> swear to God. And, you know, and, and, and honestly, while you are rooster fishing or, you know, just cruising around looking for fish wherever you are, it's those things that, you know, get under your skin and at least get under mine and, you know, sort of continuously, uh, you know, make me appreciate sort of the, the real things about what need to be looked after. And, yeah, that, <clears throat> that was an important whale. That was Frank Smethurst. Thanks for listening. The second installment of Live from Five Point will be out shortly. Stay tuned and let us know what you think. We'd love to do something like this again. Also, we've got as many links to YouTube videos, etc., etc., on our site, and we will post all the videos that pertain to Volume 2's presenters so that you can watch them ahead of time. May help you pick up a little bit on the story. Music today by Sound of 73, Piccolo Orchestra Gagarin, Malajube, and Baby Champ, the original Scraper by King. We owe a bunch of thank yous for help in creating this episode. Patagonia made this possible from start to finish. They make five points possible. They make the Dirtbag Diaries a reality, and they made Saturday afternoon a day I will never forget. Thank you. New Belgium Brewing came and provided the liquid courage for the event. We owe Annie a big thanks for creating this unique beer tasting and for a sneak peek of Somersault Summer Ale, which just hit the shelves on a market near you. And to five points. To Julie Kennedy and Beta Calhoun, who not only share our idea of the outdoors and community, but keep defining creativity. Between Jeremy Collins' live onstage film event and Cold, a movie which wouldn't have been possible without Julie, this was truly an exceptional year. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. Thanks to Frank Smetherhurst and Baby Champ for joining us in this experiment. I'm Fitz. I'm Becca. And you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.